Good morning, everyone. I want to thank um, Mervyn and Ketson for what they're doing right now. So to give you a little bit of context, folks, um, we have a great AV media team, um, and James and Ben couldn't be here today. They are both away. And so Ketson and Mervyn have stepped up now, I feel their pain because during the entire pandemic, there I was with Roy in our house. We had all the equipment and actually they've got double the amount of work that we had to do because we simplified it during the pandemic. But there's lots of like software and screen and YouTube and back and forth and muting and it's actually quite complicated and it's very stressful. <laughs> and so um, I really appreciate um, Ketson and Mervyn taking it over today and, um, and doing what you're doing. But we do apologize for starting a little bit later with the technical difficulties that I believe have been solved now, and so we'll, we'll continue to soldier on. Have you ever felt discouraged? And I don't mean just frustrated or even a little bit blue, but I mean the kind of discouraged that kind of hollows your soul and leaves you feeling inadequate and overwhelmed. It's not a very nice feeling. I've felt it many times in my life. It's something that most of us, I think, have experienced at some point. And it happens to anyone, regardless of circumstances or even achievements. You might recognize Michael Phelps, the most decorated Olympian of all time, with a total of 28 medals, 23 of which are gold. So you would think that he would have at least 23 reasons to be really happy. But before the 2016 Rio de Janeiro uh, Olympics, he revealed publicly for the first time that he has actually been struggling with depression for many years, and that after the 2012 Olympics, at which we, he won four gold medals and two silver medals, that after the Olympics, he went home, spent days locked up in his room, not eating, not sleeping, and not wanting to live. Last year, he said in an interview with ESPN that the pandemic and the lockdown have been the most difficult time of his life. He said, the pandemic has been a challenge I never expected. All the uncertainty, being cooped up in a house, and the questions, so many questions. When is it going to end? What will life look like when this is over? Am I doing everything I can to be safe? Is my family safe? It drives me insane. I'm used to traveling, competing, and meeting people. This is just craziness. My emotions are all over the place. I'm always on edge. I'm always defensive. I'm triggered so easily. There are times I feel absolutely worthless where I completely shut down but have this bubbling anger that is through the roof. This is the most overwhelmed I've ever felt in my life. And I think for many people around the world, the past 12 months has been some of the hardest times of their lives. How do we find the strength, the courage, the resilience to keep going forward in these uncertain times, living each day with purpose. One thing that really helps me is hearing stories of people like Michael Phelps who have the courage to say, I go through this. I have felt discouraged, and this is how I cope. And if you, if you Google the interview, he shares some strategies that he uses uh, to, to care for his mental health. For our collective post-lockdown pandemic recovery, Roy and I are doing a series on pioneers of faith, in, in individuals in history whose faith in God have inspired them to live extraordinary lives despite the challenges and who then inspire us with their faithfulness. 
Last week, I shared about Katerina von Bora, Martin Luther's wife, the first lady of the Protestant Reformation. Today, I want to tell you about John and Julia Corliss, a very discouraged team, uh, them and a few others, um, of missionaries whom God used to establish the first Seventh-day Adventist church in Australia. First, a little bit about John. John uh, Orr Corliss was born in Maine, at the, which is at the very tip of, tip of the east coast of the U.S., uh, in 1843. His mother was Scottish, his father was uh, British, um, and at the age of five, his father passed away. So then John grew up, at some point he had an adopted father, but the adopted father treated him very harshly. So at the age of 16, he decides, I'm going to go join, I'm going to go to the sea, become a sailor, run away from home, to so to speak. So he goes away at 16, and for two years, he's a sailor. And at some point in that experience, he has a conversion experience that we don't know that much about, but he becomes a Christian. He gets married at the age of 21, and then he enlists in the Union Army of the American Civil War. After the war ended in 1865, he returned home, um, and he was baptized into, um, by a Baptist minister in 1866. But shortly thereafter, tragedy hits and his wife dies. His wife, Susan Gowell, dies on November 16, 1867. And while he's mourning uh, this huge loss and this you know, huge you know, shift, he's such, still such a young man, right? He's, he's 22 years old. Um, he meets a, a, a couple who had actually traveled to Maine to preach about Jesus and his second coming and, and the truths that they had discovered in the Bible. And he meets this couple named James and Ellen White. And they obviously had an impression on each other because James and Ellen invite John Orlis to move to Michigan. And he actually accepts. So he moves from Maine to Michigan. And there he learns more about the Seventh-day Adventist faith um, and he eventually gets baptized um, by James White. And at the age of 25, he becomes the superintendent and chaplain of the Battle Creek Health Reform Institute, which was a wellness center that later in the later years um, had a hospital with research facilities, had a nursing school, as well as the sanitarium food company that later moved to Australia. Also in that year, John met and married Julia. Julia Ann Burgess. She, from the age of 14, had been a school teacher. And now she's 25, same age as John. And they meet and they get married and they end up uh, sharing 44 years of marriage. When John and Julia were 26, John felt called to do evangelism and, and ministry. So he was, you know, supervising and managing the, the, the health center, but he really wanted to do evangelism. He wanted to tell people about Jesus. And so, you know, he, here he is wanting to be a pastor. And at this point, the Seventh-day Adventist church was very, very small, and uh, they didn't have the funds. And so they said, we can't, we can't pay you as a pastor, as a gospel worker. But John and Julia went anyway to the remote parts of Michigan. Now, I used to live in Michigan. And so when I say remote parts of Michigan, I, I can picture exactly what it looks like. Um, Roy and I actually met in Michigan uh, while we were studying at uh, the seminary there. And we were studying at a big city in the sense of there were two traffic lights. So when I say remote parts of Michigan, 
think less than two traffic lights. You know, very, very small towns. And John and Julia, very, very poor, walked on foot to these remote areas of Michigan. Extremely cold. I still remember one of the first things that Roy and I did like when we were kind of interested in each other was that he came and snowed, uh, shoveled my car out because in Michigan, the snow completely covers your car and you can't go anywhere until it gets shoveled out. And um, I remember being on the second floor of the, of the apartment and I'm like, oh, I have to go shovel my car out. I looked out and Roy had shoveled it out for me. So that was the beginning of many wonderful dates in very, very cold Michigan. And so when he and Julia go to, go to these remote parts of Michigan, it's freezing cold. Um, it's, a, it's a new environment. They don't have a salary. And so John picks up you know, random jobs here and there, but it's really Julia who's the breadwinner. She goes to work cooking for the sawmill workers every day, gets paid $2 a week. And with that, they supported his ministry and her, you know, work together as a team, um, sharing their faith uh, in Jesus. Life was really hard for Julia and John. They actually lost all three of their first children. The first, Frank, born in 1870, died at the age of four. Their second, Frederick, born in 1873, died when he was only eight months old. And they lost their third child, Lou Ellen, when she was only 18 months old. Just harsh conditions of that time. They did end up having two more children, Lulu and William, who did survive into adulthood and who are pictured here. Finally, after their work of bringing many people to Jesus um, and starting churches that still exist in Michigan today, in 1874, in recognition of his work, John was ordained as a Seventh-day Adventist minister, and he started getting paid. So life became a bit more stable for this family. However, John and Julia continued to travel, you know, as part of their work. They tra- they stable meant they now have a little bit of finances, but they still had to travel quite extensively by wagon, by train. They preached on the East Coast, and they went all the way down to Georgia. They went all the way up to Maine, to Virginia, and they went all the way out west to California. So this is a time when it would take, travel was difficult and, and strenuous, and they did all that. And then as if that wasn't far enough, right, to go from east coast of the U.S. to the west coast of the U.S., in October 1884, the 7th-day Adventist Church headquarters, which is called General Conference, um, nominated a small group of people to go establish a mission center in Australia. Why Australia? (laughs) Why Australia? Because here's this, you know, movement that started in the U.S., in in the, you know, northeastern states of the U.S., and, and had spread to you know, a a good-sized group, but still very tiny. But God had shown a vision to Ellen, saying that he wanted this message to go out to all the world. And the angel specifically said, Australia. But for many years, it was really hard for them to send anyone, because can you imagine this small group having enough funds and, and, and and the opportunity to send a team to Australia? So finally, in 1884, they're able to have the funds to to send a small team over, and they nominated um, John and Julia as one of those members. So on 10th of May, 1885, five men, two women, and four children boarded the SS Australia. Who are these people? There was Henry Scott, who was a printer, um, and he took his little hand, hand printer, William Arnold, who was a corporator, which um, basically was someone who sold the books, that, the religious books that were printed. 
They're also called literature evangelists, or LEs for short. There was Pastor Stephen Haskell, Pastor Mandel Israel and his wife Lizzie, and their two daughters, Jesse and May. And of course, Pastor John Corliss and his wife Julia, and their two kids, Lulu and William. These illustrations and the following story is from the book Leaves of Hope, written by uh, Amanda Buse, who is from Melbourne, um, illustrated by Jade Zivanovic. And um, these are a series of children's stories they've written, but based on the research that they've done, which um, I've, I've used and other research as well to share with you today. So after five long seasick weeks, they finally dock in Sydney. So they left San Francisco. Five weeks later, they dock in Sydney. Pastor Stephen Haskell and Pastor Mandel Israel stayed in Sydney to see what Sydney was like. You know, they're like, oh, you know, is this a good city too? So they stayed to kind of scope it out while the rest of the group sailed on the SS Wentworth to Melbourne. And once they landed, they, they got to work straight away. They rented a house on Hyatt Street, Richmond, which still stands today. You can go have a look. It's number 64. Um, this is a picture from many years ago. I couldn't find a more modern picture, but it's still there. It was winter time, so it was, you know, June, July, freezing cold and wet. The houses were not heated. There was no furniture, no stove. And in 2018, can you imagine how many hundred, like, you know, so many years later, they found Julia Corliss's diary. So for all those years, they didn't know it existed. And in 2018, they found her diary, which is, she wrote extensively for many years. 90 pages, she talks about her time in Australia. And she describes how cold it was and how, because it didn't have a stove at first, she just cooked potatoes over, like, the grill, you know, until they were able to order a stove and get it in. And 10 adults and four children cramped into that little house. They ended up moving uh, five times in the first six months around the various inner suburbs of Melbourne, so Richmond, Fitzroy, St. Kilda, etc. Um, it was hard going. John booked a hall in Richmond, which still um, is there today, and you can go and have a look. Um, and he ran six lectures. The first night there were 40 people, but by the end there were only a handful. The Melbournians didn't like these Yankees, as they called them, with their American accents, right? And sharing beliefs that challenged their worldview. The little team set up a publishing house. So, you know, at first he used a little hand print, and then he was um, actually John and Julia donated a lot of their personal funds to, to purchase a printing house um, so they could print pamphlets and books and finance this project, but people weren't interested. For six whole weeks, not a single book was sold. William Arnold, the corporator, who had been quite a successful corporate in Michigan, was feeling so discouraged. Six weeks, not a single book sold, no income. How, you know, how are they going to feed these 14 people? How are they going to continue the work? How, how, are, how are they going to establish anything when nobody seemed interested? You know, they, um, John had written these tracts about the Sabbath and he was trying to hand them out. Nobody wanted them. He would go door to door and say, hey, can I leave these in your business for people? No. They all wanted to give up. John wrote a letter back home and he said, the weather is bleak. The people are bleak. I don't think we'll start a church here. You can tell it was just a little bit bitter, Yeah. <laughs> And one day on a particularly cold and wet day in August, right? We all know what August in Melbourne is like. It was raining, 
And John is trying to hand out these tracts about the Sabbath out by the treasury gardens here in the city. It was freezing. It was dark. No one cared. And if they happened to take a tract out of curiosity or, you know, whatever, they would drop it soon after. And he would see his beloved pamphlets printed and published with the little money he had in the gutters. And he felt miserable. So he then, and he's wet and cold, you know, he didn't have a thick jacket and Kathmandu rain, you know, you know, he, he was standing there and he just thought, forget it. And so the remaining tracks that he had, he spiked on the picket fence on the corner of the treasury gardens and he went home, thoroughly miserable. And this is where the story becomes a miracle. Because a man was walking by that picket fence, William H.B. Miller, who happened to be a printer and a member of a debating society. And he noticed this tract fluttering in the, well, probably sopping wet on the picket fence in the wind. And he picked it up and he read it. And he saw the address um, that was written on the tract and he went to John's house in Richmond and knocked and when the surprise family, you know, in the middle of their meager dinner, opened the door, Mr. Miller explained that he was a member of a debating society and thought this would be a great topic for at the next meeting. Would John like to speak at this debate on the topic, which day is the Sabbath? Would he indeed? John was actually a very eloquent and very competent, intelligent debater. I actually, in, in preparation for the sermon, read a lot of his tracts. Really logical, very persuasive. From that debating group, 17 people later became the first Seventh-day Adventists in Australia and went on to become the charter members of the first Seventh-day Adventist church in Australia. They called themselves the North Fitzroy Seventh-day Adventist Church, established on April 10th, 1886, with 28 members. So the 10 people who had come, plus these uh, new, they had 18 baptized, so 28. The group didn't have a building, so they met in various temporary places. Eventually, 10 years later, they did build a building, which still stands today. There's still a church there. It's a historic site, so they're not allowed to change the building very much. And this is where our church goes to get baptized. And so you've, you've, most of you have been there. It's a very um, important, significant place in history. So, but until this was built, they didn't have a, a place to you know, present and, and et cetera. And so um, they had to to meet in homes. So a lot of times John and Julia would open up their homes and they would have meetings there. If you, um, the Australian, so, so they would, at one point John and Julia, Julia and the team, they bought this big tent and um, they could seat 220 people. And they used these tents and they would pitch them up. And so the first tent meeting they had was, you know, in the gardens, the Edinburgh Gardens in North Fitzroy, so right across from where the church is now. That was where they had their first tent meetings. They also ran them, um, and, best, and for those first meetings, they advertised in The Age, and um, they ended up running these series also in St. Kilda, Ballarat, Geelong, etc. If you go to, whoopsie, let me go back. 
there's um, actually the Australian Union ministerial team has created a walking tour of all the historic sites, which is available on their website. And we were actually scheduled to do this together as a church last year, but then pandemic hit. So we're going to reschedule it and hopefully do this walking tour together um, of the various places. So stay tuned for that. With the amount of work that they were doing, so, you know, John and Julia and the team, they were preaching nonstop, you know, nonstop um, caring for people, nonstop opening up their homes. And eventually John's health um, broke down. And so they had to return to the U.S. to um, recuperate. Um, So they had to leave Australia after just two years. But when they left, so after two years when they left, there were 200 Seventh-day Adventists in Victoria. They actually returned to Australia uh, for three more years in 1893, during which time Julia also preached, gave Bible studies, and was involved in ministry to the poor because 1893 was when the Australian banking crisis hit and the banks failed, the Federal Bank of Australia failed, and people, like very much like today, were in uh, economic duress, but without the support that they have today. And so individuals like Julia was responsible for setting up um, uh, spaces to give out food and helping um, with the children, and um, they worked with Salvation Army, and there's a building in Melbourne today still that you can see where they operated and did the ministries there. Julie and John um, also worked in Tasmania, Sydney, and Perth before returning to the U.S., once again because of overworking and health problems. And so can you think about all the places that you might have been, and some of you are from Tasmania and Sydney and Perth. They started all that work there, um, setting up new believers, setting up churches, um, encouraging them. They even set up a Bible school in St. Kilda, which for many years operated there, and then moved to Avondale um, and became the Avondale College. And I think it's now in university or on its way. After they recovered from their health, they went on to work in Canada, England, and Washington, D.C. John was actually instrumental in um, making sure that the U.S. wanted to pass some laws, um, for example, teaching Christianity in schools, and he was actually instrumental in stopping that and saying we need to have a separation of church and state. Um, and so he's actually a very influential figure in kind of just secular politic, political history as well. Julia died in 1912. Whoopsie. <laughs> Julia died in 1912, and John died in 1923 after 55 years of service to the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Today... Thanks in part to them and the other efforts of many people who have gone before, there are more than 65,000 Seventh-day Adventist Christians in Australia and more than 25 million Seventh-day Adventists around the world because of pioneers like John and Julia, but also mainly because God does not give up. He continues to work in the most discouraging circumstances and even through very discouraged people, right? That it all started with John saying, I give up, and spiking that pamphlet on top of that iron fence and walking away. And God used that to spark what became this movement. He had said about Melbourne, the weather is bleak, the people are bleak, right? I don't think we'll start a church here. And look at how many churches there are today. God proved him wrong about the people and the church. I think he was spot on about the weather. (laughs) Because I tell you what, 
when Roy and I arrived in Melbourne in August, winter of 2012, it was bleak. It was cold. I remember thinking, I just came from Michigan where we have snow up to here, literally, but I'm colder now because in Michigan we have thick walls and heating. <laughs> and I was wearing like basically a sleeping bag all the time. But here I was deceived because I didn't think I needed all that. Um, and the walls were thin and, and this, nobody had heating and I was freezing cold all the time. Roy and I were 27 years old and we were eager to share Jesus with the city. We were so excited. We were on fire. You know, we were ready to go. We wanted to, we tell, we would walk around, you know, my, this was my first time in Australia. Roy had been in Australia for many years before, but this was my first time in Australia. I walked through those city streets, imagining a church, you know, an Adventist church sign in front of one of those buildings, all these dreams and visions of what could be. Fast forward one year and we were thoroughly discouraged. (laughs) We're smiling here. But inside, we were miserable because exactly a year after we first arrived, we were at a picket fence moment. This is the edge of the Eureka Tower overlooking the city. And we were wondering, do we stay here in Melbourne? Because we had a team, when we came to Melbourne, we had been asked to plant a new church, to start a new church in Melbourne CBD, um, reaching young professionals in the city. And so we had a team of eight people because we didn't, you know, we started from scratch and they say, you know, we'll help you. So these uh, eight people started with us, but after a series of events, five of them splintered off saying that we were not the right fit for Melbourne. We were too American, right? Those Yankees, (laughs) too young, too this, too that. They shared those sentiments with the conference. And so the conference, I mean, we're going to move us out of the city and possibly boot us back to America. We felt stabbed in the back and abandoned and hurt. On top of all that, we had a newborn. We were exhausted (laughs) and we felt so alone. We had left our supportive and loving families and friends and church communities, you know, in the U.S. to come to Melbourne and start this church and we had failed. And then God did something amazing. Three of the remaining eight, you know, five people splintered off. There were three left over. Three of those people came to our home in here in the city. We used to live in the city. And they visited us. And they said, we believe in you. We believe God wants you to stay. We're with you. And they prayed for us. And they encouraged us. And they lifted our spirits out of the depths of despair. <laughs> And then they organized a dozen people to sign a petition asking the conference to keep us as the pastors of this church. People who are still here today. You know who you are. And they said, let's start a church service and people will come. You know, right now we've only got the, you know, <laughs> the, the, really it was um, those three. And then like they had managed to have, we had a small group. So, you know, all together we were like at best 12 Right, counting us and Micah. And they said, let's start a church service and surely there are people in the city we can, we can bring in. There are people who have left the church who, who you know, we think we can reach and so let's start a church service. But then we have this huge challenge. We had no money. We had $2,000. How could we find and start a church service? Any rental in the city was going to cost minimum $500 for a two-hour rental Saturday morning. 
So we prayed a bold prayer. We said, God, give us a free venue in the city. And within a week of us praying that prayer, on August 27th, 2013, I looked this all up. I spent hours tracking all, going back to my emails, looking at the history. August 27th, 2013, Roy had lunch with a businessman named Derek Rippingale. And Roy was telling him why we had come back to Melbourne, or he, why he had come back to Melbourne and brought his new, new wife. We had just been married that, like, you know, year before. Newly married. We came here four months after we got married. And Derek, you know, listened to Roy and, and sharing his ideas and dreams and visions. And, and Derek said, do you need a place to worship? I've got a business in this city, uh, office in the city. Do you want to you have a look? And so Roy was like, okay, imagining cubicles. And Derek brought him up to the 10th floor of 500 Collins Street, showed him this meeting room, showed him the AV equipment because this is like a, you know, IT company, showed him the dining area, showed him the meeting rooms. And Roy was like, this is perfect. And he was like, how much? And Derek turned and looked at him and said, don't worry about it. People like me are looking for people like you to do God's work. I've been praying, God, what more can I do for you? So this is actually an answer to my prayer, he said. And the rest is history. From that handful of people, right? We had in 2013 to the 92 people who are part of our church community today. We have seen God time and time again do impossible things in spite of us, through our failures and limitations. I remember in 2014, 2016, juggling three churches between Roy and myself. I'd preach in Melton, he'd preach in Tullamarine, um, and then we would hurry back in the city, make sure Micah got fed, you know, and then we'd rush in the city and have afternoon service here. And so many balls to juggle, man, so many balls dropped. There were so many times where Roy and I turned to each other and said, should we go back to America? Are we doing any good here? And time and time again, through the ups and downs of our family life, our own individual journeys, the ebb and flow of church community, and even through the global pandemic, God has shown that he has a purpose for this church that he has a purpose for us. In another six months, we have another bend in the road. Derek called us um, in the beginning of this year, or at the end of last year, and said, um, oh, you know, due to the pandemic, they're actually going to downsize, so they're actually not going to be in this floor anymore. And he was like, I'm sorry. And we're like, you gave us seven years of ministry space. Do you guys know, not only do we have services here Saturday mornings, but for the seven years, we had Bible studies here on the weekday evenings because people work in the city, and afterwards we would meet them here and have Bible studies in these meeting rooms. We, would, um, we, had, we, would, uh, we even had at one point um, a breakfast uh, Bible study here in, one, in the space here. We've done so much ministry here. He's allowed us, he gives us free storage, this whole place, right? So much uh, amazing generosity and hospitality. So we said thank you and don't worry about it because God has a plan for this church. 
we've actually been applying, we applied for funding to the South Pacific Division, which is the entity that oversees the churches in Australia, New Zealand, Pacific Islands. Um, and we've applied for funding for a center of influence in the city. Not just a space for us to worship, but a space for us to meet and mingle and minister to the people in Melbourne. During the weekday, on the weekends, right? All the time. We've actually applied six times before and never got it. This is our seventh time. <laughs> we believe um, that whatever the end results, right? Even if, if they say no again, we believe that God will provide. Because God has a purpose for this church. He has a purpose for Melbourne. He has a purpose for you, for me, to be a light and a blessing to the people here and to those in our spheres of influence. You may not feel like a blessing. You may be feeling discouraged, overwhelmed, over it, tired. You may be wondering, is it worth it? Is being faithful worth it? Is being honest and kind worth it? When you feel unappreciated for the things you do, whether it's in the home, changing nappies, cleaning, cooking, or whether it's in the church, doing the AV that doesn't work out, <laughs> right? Whether it's in, you know, the workplace where you are being honest and, and ethical, even though others around you are getting promoted for doing sketchy things. Whether you're feeling unappreciated in your school where, where you're doing your best um, and you feel like no one cares. Or maybe it's you know, in your relationships with your, with your friends, with your coworkers, with your family, etc. In those moments when you feel like giving up, I want you to remember this promise. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 9 and 10, written by a man named Paul, who was the first century Christian missionary and faced lots of challenges. You think about discouragement, he was stoned, whipped, beaten, all kinds of things. He says, let us not become weary in doing good. For at the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. You never know what God can do with a tract spiked on a fence or a couple of Yankees or a prayer request that feels like a lost cause. God can do extraordinary things, even through unworthy, discouraged people and through desperate circumstances. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16 to 18, Paul said, Therefore we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. I pray that in our discouragement and distress, right, in the difficulties that we face in our daily lives, that we can cling to the invisible God who has an incredible ending to our stories. We don't know, perhaps even in this lifetime, the, um, the impact that we are making in the world today. But one day we'll be able to see that story. One day we'll see those illustrations of, a, of how God is faithful, even when we're not. I want to do something new. Um, Roy and I, we, we thought, you know what? We want to give you an opportunity to respond. So we're calling it kind of next steps. 
I'd like you to take your phones out. And if you don't have a phone that can scan this, I've got paper versions as well. So afterwards, let me know and I'll give you a paper version. But if you, if you go to this QR code, and, and those of you watching online, I really want to encourage you to do this as well. So whether you're watching live or later on, please, I want to encourage you to do this next step. And there's, and I want, there's many choices, and so everyone can respond in, in, to something. So for example, it says, I want to take the next step. One, op- one way to take that next step, and you can check all that apply, is maybe you want to learn more about Jesus through personal Bible studies. Or maybe you'd like to get baptized. Maybe you've never been baptized um, and you want to say, you know what? I actually do want to make that commitment to you, Lord. Perhaps you want to join a Bible reading or devotional plan. You know, we do that from time to time. Um, if you say yes, then we'll, we'll send you another one. Maybe you'd like a prayer partner. I cannot tell you the number of times I felt so discouraged and I would have prayer with my prayer partners and light was out again. You know, the sun was out again. Um, so if you'd like a prayer partner, tick that box. Perhaps you'd like to join a small group. Now that the lockdown restriction, uh, the restrictions have lifted, we can have 30 people to a home. We are going to resume small groups. There's one in Box Hill in the east. There's one in Coburg in the inner north. And there's one in the city slash west in Williamstown. So, um, yeah, if you want to join a small group, tick that one. Maybe you want to transfer your membership. So many of you have memberships in other Seventh-day Adventist churches around the world. We would love it if you could transfer your membership here um, because those kind of things actually do matter. Um, Perhaps you would like to meet up and talk to one of us. And I say one of us because Roy and I are both pastors here. And um, maybe you'd like to talk to one of us or both of us. Um, Maybe you just want to have a meal with us. Just check that box and we'll be in touch and uh, we would love to to connect with you. Uh, Maybe you'd like to receive our weekly church newsletter. Um, Check that box. And there's other because the Holy Spirit is working in your hearts. You heard a message today about how God can work through discouraged people. And maybe in your heart you felt, oh, yeah, God is, God is actually you know, encouraging me in this next step that's specific to your situation. And so in that other, you write down what that next step is that is right for you, that God is speaking through, that the Holy Spirit is revealing to you. And I would like you to write that down, your response to, to God today. Number two is um, I would like to serve by helping with, there's many, many, many people that make this church work, um, but many hands make the work lighter. So if you'd like to help in any one of these areas, um, we would really appreciate it. And I I think you will also find that in that service, you feel more part of the community as well because, you know, um, you belong to the family. And so if you'd like to help um, in any of these or other areas, let us know. Number three just says, I would like to learn more about, and basically we're inviting you, if there's a, a topic you would like us to preach about, right? If, you, if there's something you would like us to, to share about, um, put those in, and that way we can um, prepare those to preach in the future. And of course, um, if you have any prayer requests, number four says, I would like prayer about. If you have a prayer request, um, put that in, and we'll pray for you. Or any other questions or comments is the last one. So we would really like you to fill this out so that we know what's going on with you and that we can help serve you better and, and, and um, help you grow in your spiritual journey with God. And so um, once again, if you don't have the QR code thing, just get, get a paper copy from me after this, after this is over, and um, I'll hand those out with some pens for you. If you could just join me in a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, 
Thank you. Thank you that despite our failures and limitations, that you are powerful and faithful God. Thank you that when we look back at the history of our church, at the history of our lives, that you've been there and you've pulled through when all things seemed impossible. Father, I want to pray for this church, for those who are here, for those who are watching, for those who are not here, um, for those who have left. I want to pray that every single person would feel your love today and would experience your grace and would feel that incredible pool of the desire of all ages inviting us into eternal relationship with you. And Father, I pray for these next steps. Whatever next steps you've inspired in each one of us, help us to be brave enough to take that next step, to be vulnerable enough to say we trust in you. And Father, I want to pray for the future of our church as well. We know that it's in your hands. We know that, Father, you, you have exciting things planned for this city, for the people, for our church. And we pray that we would be discerning of your will, that we'd be obedient to your will, and that as a church community, we'd be able to be exciting pioneers of that will to bring it all back to where it began here in Australia. And so, Father, thank you for the privilege of being a part of this movement and this mission and help us to be individuals who, through discouragement, can still see the invisible. We pray in your son's name. Amen.